Well, uh, please take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Acts 17. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks out there, you can find our text on page 926. The title of our sermon is No King But Christ, and the keywords for our worshipers and training are Uproar, King, and Search. Acts 17, we'll be looking at the first 15 verses of the chapter. Throughout our trek through the book of Acts, we have witnessed an ongoing conflict between two warring kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told His apostles that God's kingdom, with Christ now on the throne as Uh, the resurrected God-man would expand ever outward from Jerusalem through the witness of the apostles. And yet, we also see that the kingdom of man would nevertheless resist. We've seen numerous times so far the, the advancements of the kingdom of God and then, sadly, the resistance of the kingdom of man, and yet all throughout, the kingdom of man has never succeeded in overcoming God's kingdom and its ever outward march from Jerusalem. God's kingdom continues unperturbed ever onward. And so, where we find ourselves this week is in, uh, once again, a, a new city, a new place having been asked, possibly even begged, to leave Philippi, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they leave town. This is what we saw last week at the end of Acts 16. Now it seems that Luke uh, stayed behind in Philippi. He's no longer writing in the first person here. Perhaps he's stayed behind to help the fledgling church in Philippi now, comprised at least of two households, Lydia and the jailer. Today, we're going to see Paul and Silas in particular minister in two places, Thessalonica and Berea. Now, Timothy isn't really mentioned much in the story, uh, likely because he was still young at this point and was probably just assisting them in the work, but Luke does tell us that he was with them in Berea in verse 14. Uh, But exactly who's ministering here isn't of the utmost importance, but what happens is, and so We're going to look in these first 15 verses at the ministry of Paul and Silas in these two places, Thessalonica and Berea, and we will see two wildly opposite, two significantly opposing reactions to their ministry and to the message of Christ. So let's read Acts 17, verses 1 through 15, and then we will outline it and get to work on our passage this morning. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, 
as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And, then we, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Well, in keeping with the two parts of this passage, verses 1 to 9 and 10 to 15, uh, there are two parts to this sermon. First, we will examine Paul and Silas among the rabble in Thessalonica in verses 1 to 9. Second, we'll see their ministry among the noble Bereans in verses 10 to 15. Look with me in the first place then at verses 1 to 9 where we see Paul and Silas and their ministry among the Thessalonians. And let's just say right up front, by most standards, it does not go great. And we'll consider this ministry under two subheadings. Uh, First, in verses 1 to 3, we'll see Paul and Silas ministering the gospel in the synagogue. And then in 4 through 9, we'll see the Thessalonians' response to the gospel. So first, in verses 1 to 3, Luke tells us that Paul and Silas passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and arrived at Thessalonica. Now, unlike Philippi, there was a synagogue there. And so, as was his custom, Paul went in, and for three weeks on the Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He explained to them and proved to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he did this, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Remember, the the word Christ is from a Greek word that simply means anointed one. Same for the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same. uh, They mean the same thing, anointed one. And so Christ is a title and not Jesus' last name. When the the Jewish uh, people, though, thought of the Christ, thought of the Messiah, uh, their expectation had become fairly skewed. This was someone, uh, uh, a coming one prophesied in the Old Testament that they were expecting the Christ to come. And this is 
partly what they, this is what they expected. Some of it's right, some of it's maybe lacking a bit, and so we'll see. So when, when they think about who the Christ was, what he was to be, they understood from the Old Testament that the Christ was to be the anointed prophet, priest, and king of Yahweh. He would be the prophet better than Moses, who would bring the ultimate and final word of God to his people. He would be the priest better than the Levites, who would sanctify God's people for all time in perfect holiness. And he would be the king better than David, who would rule over God's people, crushing God's enemies in perfect righteousness and justice. Now all of these things, to be sure, were indeed true of the Messiah. But there was a major thing that the Jews had missed. You see, the glory that we just described was through, it was to be obtained through the agony of death. It was only through the cross that the Messiah was to obtain the crown. It was through the cross that He was to atone for the people's sins once and for all. It was through the cross that He would establish once and for all God's final prophetic word. But they just couldn't see it. In particular, they expected their Messiah to overthrow the Roman oppressors and free them from their bondage. And so any Christ who would suffer and not be some victorious king was a stumbling block to the Jews. And so Paul sought to reason with them. Reason with the Thessalonians in the synagogue and to prove to them from the Scriptures that the Christ had to suffer and to rise. There's perhaps many different places he could have gone, but is it not likely that he would have taken them to Isaiah 52 and 53? And this passage I'm sure you're familiar with. We saw it back in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. So we won't quote it here, but I do want to summarize this passage in Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12. The prophet the prophet Isaiah speaks there of the servant of the Lord, another identifying term for the Messiah, and he says that he shall indeed be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted. And then he goes on to describe in horrific detail the suffering that he would endure. He describes him as despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, smitten by God and afflicted. He said he would be crushed for the iniquities of his people, crushed by God himself, and he would be given a grave with the wicked. But the passage concludes there in Isaiah, saying that once his soul has made an offering for sin, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord that had previously brought him to grief now works for him and prospers him. Isaiah, among others, foretells here of both the glory and the agony of the Messiah in one passage. The death and resurrection and the exaltation of the servant of the Lord. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what Scriptures Paul used here, but we know that this was a a well-loved Hebrew text for God's people in those days. But whatever the particular passage was that Paul used, we know that this must have been the message, since this is the message that he 
proclaims always. He says, don't stumble, brothers, over a crucified Messiah. He says, I know it's hard to grasp given all that you've come to expect. But this is what we have been, or at least should have been, expecting all along. And he takes the next step and he says, oh, and by the way, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, He is that crucified Messiah. Paul doesn't come to the Thessalonians merely saying, here's what the Messiah is like. Here's what He would do. He says, here's what He would do. Oh, and here He is. Look upon Him, behold, and be saved. So that's the first subheading under this, these first nine verses here. That's Paul's ministry of, of the Gospel there. But look at the response now in verses 4-9. to nine. And it's, it's divided, to say the least. In verse 4, Luke tells us that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And this is something that we've seen over and over and over again. God is building His church. God's Word accomplishes its purposes. We're not told how many think we're, we're meant to understand that it's probably a, a relative few, at least of, of the Jews, but of there are great many Gentiles and, and uh, men and women, but of the Jews it seems that there were, were few. But either way, of both Jews and Gentiles here, God is rescuing His people, transferring them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of man. These devout Greeks being practitioners of, of, of Judaism at the time. And so now they hear of the Messiah whom they have been awaiting and they believe. But of that we get one verse. And the rest of this passage here up to verse 9 is about the negative response. There were those who were jealous. And this is, I think, the third time that we've seen this so far. right? Probably he's referring to the Jewish leaders. Uh, we saw this in chapter 5 and chapter 13 that the, that the Jewish leaders in the area, the Jewish leaders of the synagogue are, are jealous of people turning away from them, ultimately turning to Jesus Christ. And so they, they stir up wicked men from the rabble. They form a mob and they set the city in an uproar. As they say, things have escalated quickly. And they attack the house of one man in particular named Jason and they, and they bring him and those in the house out to the crowd. Jason seems to have been one of those newly converted residents of the city. And he, it was at his house where Paul and Silas were staying, or at least where they were thought to be staying. And for one reason or another, they couldn't find Paul and Silas. They were wisely staying hidden. But no matter, they take Jason and some of the brothers and they drag them before the city authorities and, and listen to the charge that they lay against them. These men have turned the world upside down and they have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. There's a common saying under the Roman Empire at the time, Caesar is Lord. It's astonishing how the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica, just like those in Jerusalem had done previously, 
how eager they were to acknowledge the lordship of Caesar in order to avoid the lordship of Jesus. Recall, if you will, with me, the events of John 19. In John 19, Pilate has Jesus flogged. And Jesus is then mocked. And they put a crown of thorns on His head. And they drape a purple robe across His bloody back. And then Pilate offers them to the Jews. But their, their bloodthirst is not yet quenched. Not by a long shot. Upon seeing the bloody, humiliated man, they cry out, Crucify Him! Well, Pilate tries to pawn the job off on them. He doesn't want to do this. But they won't do it themselves. For the law says, the law. How dare they talk about the law? Here they are committing the most shameless, horrendous act in history. And they have the audacity to speak about the law. Well, pitiful Pilate tries to get out of the mess he's in, but he's in over his head. He can't find him guilty of anything, but he realizes he can't let him go either. And so the Jews begin to cry out, hey, if if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Since when are they concerned about being Caesar's friend? Caesar, the same Caesar of this oppressive Roman government from whom they all longed for deliverance? They would have been glad if Jesus had said, let's charge the hill, fellas. But no, that wasn't the kind of king that he was. And so they cast him off. And Pilate, now faced with the threats of a chanting crowd, he tries one last ditch effort. He presents Jesus before the crowd and he says, Behold, your king. They cried out all the more, and you can almost hear the disgust in their voices Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate asked, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. They gladly submitted themselves to the kingdom of man in an effort to avoid submission to the kingdom of God. Remember also with me for a moment, 1 Samuel 8. There the people of Israel asked Samuel to give them a king, and Samuel protests. But God says, Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And this isn't just a problem for the Jews. You might be sick of hearing me quote Psalm 2 at this point as we go through Acts, but it it just always seems to lie so close at hand to so much of what Luke writes. Consider, what does the psalmist ponder in Psalm 2? Question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Caesar with the kings of earth and those who have given their allegiance to them set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah. But what does the Lord think about this? Psalm 2 continues, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Caesar's claim to lordship, therefore, is laughable. The Jewish leader's submission to him contra the claims of Jesus are sad and pathetic. Now, this message, there is another king, Jesus, is not a call to chaos, not a call to an outright rejection of the concept of civil government, which is a hard thing for me to say. But it is a relativizing of civil government's power, a relativizing of the authority of civil government. It is a strong message for those who would be in places of power and authority. As the apostles make clear in Acts, and as we can understand even from Paul's argument in Romans 13, when, when governments overstep, when they reach beyond their derivative authority, there is an obligation to obey and to submit to a higher authority, to another king, Jesus. Now the truth is about this passage, it's not even clear exactly what all they said. We, we've seen over and over again that the crowds and the Jewish leaders here were all too willing to lie about what Paul and his company were saying. So it's very unlikely even here in, Thessalonians, or in Thessalonica that they were outright explicitly charging them to cast off the bond of Caesar or something like that. But the implication of this Messiah who must die and raise from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God, again, the Jewish leaders who loved their authority and the fame and the power that they had, they were jealous. They couldn't tolerate a, a relativizing of their authority, a relativizing of their power. And so they were quite bothered, both the Jewish leaders and the city authorities to whom uh, Jason was brought. They were bothered by this with the people. They loved Caesar for the things that he gave them. And so they, they extorted Jason and the rest, and they let them go, saying, let us hear no more from you about this matter, or else we'll be taking more from you than money. So that's the, the ministry there in, among the Thessalonians, verses 1 to 9. Look with me in the second place, verses 10 to 15, where we see a substantially different reaction, a different reception to the message of Messiah. Paul and Silas, we're told, are sent away by night to Berea. From verse 14, we can gather that Timothy went with them. And as usual, they head into the Jewish synagogue. And Luke tells us that these Jews were more noble than those of the Thessalonians. For they, apparently, in mass, received the word with all eagerness. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them believed, therefore, 
with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So that's pretty much what happens. Not a lot written there. And so what, what are some lessons to draw from, from this passage? Verses 10 to 15. And we'll, we'll tie some of it in as well with the first, uh, the first passage as well in 1 through 9. Two lessons in particular. First, be like the Bereans. Search the Scriptures. You know, the, the Thessalonians, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures, but apparently most of them decided it just wasn't the hassle, it just wasn't worth the hassle to look and see. It didn't sound right to them, and so they assumed that they knew best. But the Bereans thought otherwise. They eagerly received the message, and they examined the Scriptures daily to see if things were so. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, do the, do the same. If Whenever you're listening to a sermon from this pulpit or a sermon anywhere else, or if you're reading a book or talking to a friend, be like the Bereans. Search. Search diligently. Search daily. And see if what is said is confirmed by the Word of God. As Christians, we believe that the Scriptures are inspired by God and are therefore necessary, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, and complete. Our doctrine must be derived from the Bible and not from our own imaginations. That doesn't mean that things aren't going to be difficult. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times that you have to kind of say something like, I just don't know. But that's why we continue to search. So that's one lesson. Be like the Bereans. A second, a second lesson here is this. And this will bring both of these passages together. The gospel message is for all. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, those of high standing, those of low standing. Sometimes we see it in individuals like Lydia or the jailer, or Jason. Sometimes we see it in groups, like the few in Thessalonica, like the many in Berea. But the gospel message is for all. The message is simple. Believe. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God and rest in Him. Think about who's who's described here. Jews, some devout Greeks, some leading women. Not necessarily the people that would have been expected at the time to be all that interested in the Gospel. To be all that interested in this religion. And so it, it raises the question for us again. Who is it? Who are the people that you assume are just outside the scope of the kingdom? What person or what group do you assume is just beyond the saving reach of the strong arm of Jesus Christ? The book of Acts helps us to see over and over and over again that there, there, there is no one in such a predicament. No one group of people, no one person from our vantage point that is outside the reach. And so, speak. 
Search the Scriptures daily and diligently and then speak freely, brothers and sisters. Share Christ generously with your next-door neighbors, with your co-workers, with your family members, and, of course, pray for them. Right? Think, who is the one person that you just know would never come to church? Maybe that's the person that you invite this week. Because, as we see, the gospel goes with no particular distinctions being made. Well, there's sort of an after credit scene here in, uh, in verses uh, 13 to 15 that I, I want to note with you as we begin wrapping up. The Jews in Thessalonica, the ignoble rabble as they are, they just couldn't let it go. They ran Paul and Silas out of their own city, but then they, heard, they got wind. They heard, wait a second. They're still, they're still preaching. They'd run Paul out of town, but when they learned that he was just next door proclaiming the Word of God, they called an Uber and headed over to stir up the crowds against him. And so Paul is brought over to Athens, and Silas and Timothy are left there in Berea, and, and, and Paul says, hey, as soon as you can, bring them, bring them to me as well. And as we'll see next week, Lord willing, an important discussion takes place there in Athens. But before we get there, we, we need to conclude with this thought. The Lord is guiding His messenger. Right? Most of you are probably familiar with Paul in Athens at the Areopagus. The, the conversation about the unknown God. Yeah, think about it. It's, it's one seeming failure after another that leads him there. He's run out of Philippi. He's run out of Thessalonica. While the Bereans, many of them it seemed, were, were all in favor of Paul, that others there still were able to be sort of converted, as it were, to the, to the mob mentality. And so he's run out of Berea, and then he comes to Athens. The Lord is sovereignly guiding His messenger through wicked aims and intentions and actions of the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man tries as it might, even bringing Saul to the point of being stoned nearly to death at one point. God continues to move His messenger along. And so here's the final question for us today. Who is your king? Who is the sovereign Lord that rules over your life? Is it Caesar? Or is it Jesus? Or is it someone or something else? Is it, is it you? The Bible is clear. This, Jesus is the sovereign Lord. Jesus is the King. And I pray that He would be your King. Our King. Brothers and sisters, Let us submit ourselves to Him. Let us give our allegiance to Him. Let us trust that He is working in us and through us and for us. He's working for our good. He's working for His glory. And that the advancement of His kingdom is sure and definite. And He's working it out. He's advancing His kingdom and His territorial reign into all the earth through infinite wisdom. 
and an excellent purpose and a glorious design. I pray that that each one of us this morning would take stock. Am I in Christ? Have I given myself over to Him to trust that His purposes for me are good, whether, whether hard or easy, whether painful or pleasant? What is it that you face that makes you to tremble, that makes you to fear, that makes you to wonder and to question, is God really for me? We'll get to this in Acts uh, 18, but, but God wants His people to know, I am for you and I am here with a plan and a purpose. And so whatever difficulties and hardships you have faced this week, or whatever things loom large in your horizon over the next seven days, entrust yourself to your King. Obey Him. Do what's right, even if it's hard, and know that God is with His people and loves us and gave His Son for us. So, who is your King? I pray that, that as we now come to the table...